The reading is from Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 27. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. This week, Sir Michael Marmot broke the disastrous news to us all that rising rates of life expectancy in England are grinding to a halt. We're not going to carry on getting older and older and older for that much longer. Since the start of the millennium, life expectancy for women has increased by three years. For men, it's increased by five years. We do have some catching up to do, since our average lifespan is only 80 compared to 83 for the ladies, but we're getting there, so watch out. The problem is that the rate of increase is slowing down and levelling off. Since, life ex- since 2010, life expectancy for men has only increased by one year. Whereas for women, it's only gone up by just over six months. And apparently this is a crisis. Should we be bothered by that? I don't know many people who've set their heart on reaching what is perceived to be the maximum age which human beings can live until, which is 115. Who wants to get there? I didn't think so somehow. And the reason we're not so keen on the idea is that on average, our health starts to run out of steam at the age of 63 for men and 64 for women. That means as things stand, for the last 20 years or so of our life, it gets difficult from a health point of view. We are no longer at our peak. And who wants to prolong that for a further 30 years? No thank you very much. The unpleasant reality is apparently we spend quite a bit of our lives going downhill. I'm told we peak sexually in our 20s, physically in terms of endurance in our 30s, intellectually in our 40s and 50s. 
There is a rumour that we are at our happiest in our 60s. But I suspect that may be the prerogative of those who have enough money behind them to be able to take early retirement and just concentrate on having fun. Those days are passing. It's probably this awareness of our mortal limitations that lies behind the phenomenon known as the midlife crisis. And I'm deeply grateful to Miriam for giving me the Ladybird book of the midlife crisis. I don't know whether it's poignant or funny, but it's a bit close to the mark, some of it. It starts by saying, when we are young, we all dream of doing something wonderful and exciting with our lives. What will we be? A cosmonaut? An underwater detective? A Tommy gunner? A groin surgeon? Anything is possible. And then one day, it isn't. So there's Jason's midlife crisis, which starts one Sunday morning in B&Q where he spots a tub of boat varnish. I will never own a boat, Jason thinks to himself. He's never wanted to own a boat. But now, not owning a boat is all he can think about. Well, there's Frank, who's 41. He's been to a record shop. He's bought, he's re-bought all the music he liked when he was young, but on the most inconvenient possible format. He also asked the 22-year-old behind the counter what new records were good. And he bought everything she recommended because she had amazing hair. (laughs) He hates all the new records, but not as much as he hates himself. And there's Brendan, who's exhausted. Today he's run four miles in his new vintage Dunlop Green Flash trainers. He's cycled ten miles. He's done a Zumba class. He's flirted with his PA. And he spent the evening looking up various aches and lumps on the internet in case they are early signs of cancer or diabetes. He will sleep till three in the morning when he will be woken by anxiety dreams about a 23-year-old graduate who can do almost everything he does for half the money. It's all really rather sad. Ecclesiastes puts it succinctly, meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless, That's the verdict of the entire book, which thankfully is not quite as repetitive as that second verse. But it's easy, on dark days, to end up feeling our lives have no meaning or significance, purpose or reason. At some point, we all ask ourselves, what's the point? Or we might say, what's the matter? What's wrong? How do we end up in this state In his letter to the Romans, the Apostle Paul actually pins the blame on God and makes him responsible. He is the one, he says, who made the whole of creation subject to futility, so that it spends its whole time groaning and in labour. Why? Why would God do such a thing? Paul says that God subjected it to futility in the hope, in the confident expectation, actually, that one day the whole of creation will be liberated from its bondage to decay and will be brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. In other words, this is not as good as it gets. God has something better, far better in store for us. So much better, in fact, that Paul asserts that the sufferings we endure here will be totally eclipsed by the glory which is to come there. Now, I quite accept But if you don't believe in some kind of life after death, then that's not going to strike you as a satisfactory answer at all. We're just left with life as it is, and that's it. If you don't believe in God, then it is just a happy, or maybe not such a happy fluke, that we're here at all. And we just have to make the most of it. 
But if there is a God, that means he created the world in which we live. And he did create it with a meaning and purpose in mind. And the point he wants to make by the futility that surrounds us is that the world as it stands is not the finished product. Because the real deal is still to come. And understanding that can be quite a liberating experience. Because for one thing it means we don't have to be so preoccupied with living beyond our three score years and ten. Prolonging life as long as possible. Because actually, yes, if this life is all there is, instinctively we want to feel we hold, need to hold on to it at all costs. And perhaps that means we invest this life with too much significance. And perhaps for that reason it's inevitable that we end up feeling disappointed and disillusioned, especially if towards the end of our lives, when there's not much to look forward to, all we can do is look back and do so with regret. The God-given Christian hope is that we have much more to look forward to than just an inevitable process of gradual decay or sudden decline. Life remains worth living. If God has something better in store for us in the future, then we can keep moving forward with purpose. When we look back and there are regrets, as there often are, we have God's forgiveness to set us free from those. When we have fears about dying, as we may have, we have the promise that actually when that moment comes, Jesus will be there to be with us and fetch us and take us home to the place he has prepared. So God's grace covers guilt about the past anxiety about the future and liberates us into making the most of the present. This is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. The freedom to say that and to live that out in practice is part of the glorious liberty of the children of God. But is it a realistic attitude to life given the world in which we live? Given all that is wrong with the world? Should we be so happy-go-lucky? Are Christians guilty of pretending that God's in his heaven and therefore all is well with the world? Are we subject to the accusation that we're just shutting our eyes to the harsh realities of life? I would disagree with that, actually. I think Christians are people who have their lives open. Jack Money's written a poem entitled What's the Point of Living? He says... I wish my eyes were shut. I wish I saw the world only dimly through glasses tainted by complacency, but I can't. I can't. I opened my eyes when I was born and the world rushed in under my eyelids, irritating, making me weep. I see a gardener, toiling to make beauty in a concrete wilderness, himself a seedbed for a cancer, Six short months later, he's dead, and beauty has returned to wilderness. Pointless creation. I see a mother with thoughtless, idle husband, sacrificing to show love's path to the children of her womb, and I see unbearably her anguished eye that watches as they follow dad on other paths. Pointless love. I see a scientist, his joy of discovery souring into bitterness as all his work, transmuted by the politicians, becomes a means of furthering suffering for humankind. Pointless effort. I see a Beethoven, deafened to the glory of his music, 
cut off by deafness and by death from all reward of sharing the joy of others in his work. Pointless perfection. I see my own family and wonder why I struggle to feed and clothe them, prepare them for a world in which their joy will be short-lived and transient. Pointless living. As an animal, I could go on. I could unthinkingly live unselfishly, seeking only the continuance of my breed. But I am not an animal. Self-aware and individual, I seek some point and purpose for myself. Finding none, I want to end it all. I want to end the futile misery of the human race and let it die, because it's pointless. I see a Christ dangling from savage nails, peering with death-glazed eyes down murky avenues of history, seeing his love rejected, his teaching set aside, yet loving still, giving point to the pointless, making of death a beginning, not an end. And then I want to live, and add my tiny point to his, and go with it, where suffering is not useless, effort is not wasted, perfection is eternally achieved, and love never, ever dies. At the church weekend, Marion was reminding me about C.S. Lewis's book, The Last Battle, saying what a marvellous book she thought it was. And the great ways Lewis gives expression to the Christian hope. There's the unicorn who enters the new creation and cries out, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. And there's the way that Lewis ends the seven volumes of his Chronicles on Narnia series. For us, he says, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, and which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before you've never read the Narnia books, let me unreservedly recommend them to you. It's inspiring, hope-filled stuff. But is it true? Is it real? I think this hope is objectively true because of the resurrection from, of Jesus from the dead, which I believe is something that really happened. What happened to Jesus is the blueprint for what happens to us. Suffering, crucified, dead and buried, but three days later, up and about again, as large as life, living proof, if you'll believe it, that death is not the end. Our resurrection starts with Jesus, and because he lives, we will live as well. And subjectively, we can have confidence because God, by his Holy Spirit, imparts to us in the here and now something of the hope which is to come, something of the knowledge of God. The joy, the abundant life, the freedom from constraint, God's goodness and love, all these things poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit when God takes up residence there. Because it's the Holy Spirit's job, actually, to give us a little bit of heaven here and now. 
so that we can live our lives in joyful anticipation of what is to come. The Holy Spirit gives us glimpses of what it's going to be like. And when we invite God to come into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, when we put our life into the hands of Christ, here and now, we can experience something of the glorious freedom of the children of God which is to come. And despite all that is wrong with the world, we can find that life is worth living to the full. Because that's the freedom that Christ gives us. And for that reason, our lives are far from futile or pointless. God wired us when he made us so that we get the maximum satisfaction out of living our life his way, by being generous, kind, loving and forgiving. It's all a bit counterintuitive, really. The selfish part of us demands to know what we're going to get out of it. The answer is that we should live that way because that's how God made us and we honour him by living that way. And as we do so, it becomes a good way of life for us and those around us and for the world in which we live. And by living life that way, to some extent, we anticipate, we model what life is going to be like in the new heaven and the new earth, which will one day be revealed to us. We live as citizens of heaven on earth. It's a positive way of living. It makes an impact on the world around us. It blesses other people and it's good for us as well. And living life that way means what matters is not how much you achieve because that's the danger of the midlife crisis. It's how you live. The kind of person that you are that counts. And no matter how old we are, we all have the opportunity to make our lives count every single day by living them well for the God who called us into existence and invites us to find meaning and purpose in our lives by getting to know him the God who made us for the express purpose that we should spend eternity with him. Paul declares that's why God made us. God made us for that very purpose. And if that's true, if that was God's purpose in creating you as a human being, then you need to get your head around that and grasp it with both hands. Because when the reality of heaven touches our mundane humdrum lives. It rescues us from futility and it makes our lives glorious.